Virtually everything that Jung studied and wrote about concerns individuation. Individuation is basically the process by which we become what we were born to be. And it's a product of what is sometimes called nature versus nurture. And the interesting thing about nature versus nurture is that that's, for Jung, it existed in a relationship, which of course it obviously does. So when we are born, we are born with the potential to become an individual person. Now, much of what we can study about that is what is common to everybody. In fact, if there's something that isn't common to everybody, or at least a large number of people, there really is no word for it, which then makes it difficult, of course, to find out what's going on. So Jung looked in a number of different areas to find out how the mind works. Now, we didn't have functional MRIs in those days, nor did we have CAT scans. Uh, nor did we have uh, PET scans, which are ways in which we try to see what's going on in the brain today. Now, parenthetically, those scans don't really tell us a lot about how the mind works. It does tell us what the mind is doing at the moment, but how it gets to that point, we don't really know, and how it produces what we would call images or engrams, we don't really know how that happens either. So Jung looked to folk tales and myths as ways of getting a sense of how the human animal over the years saw the mind working. He felt it because folk tales and myths were something that were put together over campfires or agoras or groups of people over, you know, tens of hundreds of years uh, that they would kind of filter out most of the individual cultural aspects of the tale, and what would be left would be kind of like a pure account of how the mind works. Think, for example, if someone handed you a camera and said, how do we analyze how this camera works? But you can't take it apart, because clearly we can't take the brain apart or the person dies. So what we would do is we would take a whole bunch of pictures, pictures of grids, pictures of different colors, and compare the outcome with what we were seeing. And that was what Jung was doing too. He was comparing the outcome of how people interpreted what the mind saw with how the mind was working. And we, we could get into a lot of that. That's a lot of his work with folktale and myth. But we're going to concentrate on one thing right now, and that is the dynamics of individuation. How does individuation get started? What is it? And what can we do about it? We'll then move on uh, later on with some of the elements of the psyche that get differentiated as individuation proceeds. Things like the persona, the ego, the shadow, the anima, the animus, uh, the mana personality, which is fascinating, uh, and the self. But right now we're going to talk about how does individuation get started. The answer to that is we don't know. Uh, we, we, for example, when sperm and egg come together, one cell from the father, one cell from the mother, and they combine, they immediately begin to differentiate into things like brains, eyes, fingers, toenails, knees, cardiovascular systems, neurological systems, endocrine systems, all of this. And we don't really know how the cells know when and how to do this. We talk about glial cells and some of the cells that seem to be involved, but just who's issuing the orders, we, we don't really know. So that's something we just accept. So what we can say is that the organism itself, from the time it is conceived, is concerned basically with one thing, and that is survival. 
Jung felt that survival was the ultimate motivation for virtually everything that goes on in the mind and the body. Now, again, we have to be very careful of that because if the fertilized egg, if the developing fetus is somehow not viable, it is automatically rejected by the body through what we call miscarriage, uh, sometimes even stillbirth. Uh, Somewhere in the neighborhood of more than 50% of all pregnancies are thought to end in miscarriage. So there's a lot of culling out of fetuses that are not viable uh, early on in the, uh, in the developmental process. But those that do survive develop into a, uh, a human being that becomes uh, human at birth. Uh, as soon as it takes a breath, it is then a, a human being. Up until that point, it's basically a little collection of protoplasm that's all under the supervision, if you will, and the guidance and the direction of the biological processes of the body. So after the, after the uh, birth and the child is now beginning to develop physically, it also begins to develop psychologically. This is a very interesting thing. We know, for example, that children, infants at age two weeks, begin to imitate the sound of the cries around them. This was done in studies of uh, infants in France and infants in Germany. And as we know, French and German sound not at all read like each other whatsoever. So what they discovered was that infants in France at two weeks were crying in ways that basically imitated or emulated French in terms of its rhythm, in terms of its, its pattern, in terms of its, its uh, frequency. And in Germany, they were crying more like German. So we can say to ourselves, well, how does that happen? Obviously, the two-week-old infant isn't sitting there thinking, well, you know, if I cry in a way that my parents recognize the crying as meaning something, I'll probably survive better. Uh, it's, all, it's all done physically, chemically, by something that we don't really know. But as the child develops, not only does the body develop, we're quite easily able to see that, so does the mind, and we're quite easily able to see that. One of the curious things about that is that the mind develops unconsciously. There really is no conscious ego. Uh, it develops much more slowly and really isn't up and running until maybe age five, six, seven, when, when the uh, child can begin to make its own decisions, uh, can analyze what's going on around it, process it, come up with some ideas of how to engage the environment. Everything up until that point is done by the unconscious. And how then does the unconscious influence the organism, the child, if you will, to develop in ways that are consistent with individuation, with what the child was born to be? Now, what Jung said was that the basic principle is instinct. All children are born with the instinct for survival. Uh, eating, sleeping, um, getting held, being held is a very important instinct. How does the child know what to turn to to gain that? Well, part of it is trial and error and learning. But as Jung said, there's another element that exists here, and it's the psychological component of the instinct, and that is the archetype. And Jung spent an enormous amount of time and energy on the whole idea of archetypes. And what archetypes are, are a valencing mechanism within the psyche that attracts the child to that which will gratify the instinct and repels the child from that which will not.
Now, in the beginning, that's pretty simple. Uh, the child is attracted to the nipple and sucking, and in doing so, manages to stay alive, uh, that kind of a thing. Later on, it gets really, really complicated, and just to kind of move forward a little bit, archetypes are that which show us what we need to develop our own talents, our own abilities, our own unique personalities, the, the core of, of who we are. And one of the things that we often do is, in our consciousness, we will kind of move beyond the archetypes and mistake them for what they're doing. And one of the things that uh, we deal with in therapy all the time in analysis is when we overstay the period of integration, if you will, that the archetype is trying to get us to do. And think of it this way. Let's suppose that as I, I live in uh, Olympia, Washington, which is near Seattle, let's suppose that in order for my development, I need to go to Wichita, Kansas. Uh, what the archetype may do is attract me to Atlanta, because if I'm on my way to Atlanta, I'm going to hit Wichita. Well, I, I think that's geographically correct. Maybe I'm not, but you can check that. But what happens is, once I hit Wichita, the archetype is going to shift and move me in another direction. But sometimes I'm going to think to myself, well, I'm supposed to go to Atlanta. That's where I started out. And I will persist in going to Atlanta and actually kind of overstay the period that I needed to stay in just going to Wichita. So, for example, let's suppose that I think to myself, you know, I really need to go to college and I need to study sociology. And I go to college and I study sociology and I have a course on communications. That may very well be the reason why I was attracted to studying sociology. And once I study communications, I decide, boy, I'm not really that interested in, social, in sociology anymore. I, I, I think I want to get more into human communication. But the other thing that can happen is we can go to college and we can learn what we were supposed to learn there in order to contribute to all of the assets of our personality that we need to become who we are and we stay in college when we should actually leave and move into something else. And this happens in life all the time. We, we kind of stay, we, we stick to our guns, we are responsible, we finish what we've started, and that's very well, that's, we, we need to do that, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we need to pack it all in and move on because what we have done is we have just done something that we needed for the moment, and we didn't need it for the long term. Uh, we didn't need to actually become that. I'll give you an example of that. When I was in college, I was enamored of astrogeophysics. It was a four-year major. They started it in my sophomore year, and I said to my astronomy professor, who was the one who organized the whole program, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to major in astrogeophysics. He said to me, John, you can't do it. It's a four-year major, and you only have two years left. I said, don't worry. I'm, I'm going to go to night school. I'm going to go to summer school. I'll take whatever I need, but this is what I really want to do. I mean, I was just drawn to it strongly. Well, by the end of my first semester junior year, I was flunking out. I had a 1.2 grade point average on a 4.0 system. I was within one-tenth of a percent of flunking out. And my professor, who was a very nice guy and you know, liked me very much, he said, John, look, you know, you got to, you got to recognize you are going to flunk out. You have to major in something else. Well, I had a number of courses in political science, so I majored in political science, which I didn't really care that much for. And I 
finished college and graduated. In 1987, I saw on the cover of a magazine a, uh, an image that I had often seen when I had been doing LSD, which is a whole other part of my life that started in seminary because we heard people were having uh, religious experiences on LSD and we tried it. I always saw this one configuration and here it was on the cover of my science magazine. And so I wanted to know what it was. And so I looked it up and it was basically a computer generated graph of nonlinear iterative equation, which we can get into. I've written a book about it, Archetypes and Strange Attractors. If you want to look at that, you can do that. But the upshot of it was I needed to know a certain amount of physics and math and chemistry in order to understand what this dynamic was. And I had just enough of that from what I had studied in astrogeophysics. Now, it seems pretty clear that the goal of the archetypal press in me was not for me to become an astrogeophysicist. I probably would have hated it. I would have spent most of my life analyzing computer printouts, which is not something I enjoy very well. Uh, but I was supposed to learn enough to be able to write a book 20 years later. This is what the psyche does. The psyche seems to have some sense of where we need to go and what we need to do it. And it's the archetypes that give us an image of how to do that. So when we talk about individuation, that's one of the most important things we have to remember. And that's part of the dynamic. Now, the other part of the dynamic that Jung talks about, mostly in volume eight, although he talks about it a little bit in volume seven, uh, volume seven, uh, two essays in analytical psychology, is a very good account of how psychological development occurs primarily in adulthood. Jung felt Freud had covered childhood well enough and what we really needed to do is also see what adult development was and that was his specialty. Tensions of opposites generate psychic energy. That, that's what Jung said. When we have two basically contrasting, oscillating with each other dynamics, they generate energy that seeks a way of integrating, resolving the opposites. We sometimes call it the transcendent function. Jung talked about uniting symbols that take two opposites and bring them together in a new configuration that uh, then gives us a sense of how these two things work together. Think, for example, of Quetzalcoatl, the winged serpent. Uh, birds and snakes are kind of uh, opposites. I mean, snakes climb trees and eat birds' eggs. Birds eat snakes. So they're kind of opposed to each other. But in Mayan mythology, they combine, and there's some fascinating stuff about the Mayan ruins in, uh, in for example, Guatemala, uh, Tikal, for example, that talk about how Quetzalcoatl was then imaged by people of that day through building of these pyramids. We could talk about that some other time. We don't need to do that now. So tensions of opposites, and the biggest opposite, of course, is between potential and actual, and that's something we all dwell in from the moment we are born until the moment we die, the tension between actual and possible, that tension generates psychic energy. The direction in which that psychic energy goes, Jung called Jung call it the canalization of libido. In other words, it's like the psyche creates canals for us that the water course then goes down and moves our psychic energy, our libido, in the direction of being becoming more complex people, more highly adaptive, more able to understand what's going on around us, this kind of thing. It's all done by the archetypes. 
though we are attracted in a certain dimension, in a certain direction, I'm sorry, and therefore the psychic energy moves in accordance with the archetype, which is the, yeah, the, the actualizer, if you will, the, the engineer of the blueprint that is who we are supposed to be. So this is how individuation works throughout life. And it works in, in many ways. Uh, we, we can talk about some of the aspects of the psyche, and particularly those that develop before we're consciously able to do it ourselves, uh, like the persona. We, we develop whatever personality is necessary to survive in the environment into which we are born. We can then sometimes find ourselves in environments that are different from the environment into which we were born, radically different, and when we try to affect or wear the persona in that environment, it doesn't work. Take, for example, a child who is born into a, a highly, highly deprived environment. Child is basically ignored. Parents don't pay any attention to the child. The only time the child ever gets any response from the parents is when it misbehaves. It's kind of like the child who's trying to get his parents' attention and the parent is preoccupied and First, the child says, hey, hey, mom, dad, da, 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 and doesn't get anything. And then the child goes up and tugs on the sleeve, and, and the parent says, excuse me, I'm busy. Don't bother me right now. So eventually, the child knocks over the lamp. And then the parent's like, oh, my God, what have you done? And, and the child at least is noticed. And the one thing we know from Skinner and behaviorism is that reinforcement of the fact that we exist is essential to all people. So children will take negative reinforcement, that is punishment, if they can't get any positive reinforcement. So, okay, that's their first experience of the mother archetype, which is the home, that which nourishes and nurtures and, and incubates and holds and protects, that kind of a thing. And the child learns in that mother archetype, that mother, that mother environment, to misbehave so that the child can then get some attention. Child then goes to the next archetypal level of the mother archetype, which is alma mater, Latin being the, the uh, word for mother, and the school. And the school is where the child is, again, nurtured, nourished with learning information, uh, learn, learning how to do things, uh, self-actualization in Maslow's term, self-efficacy, being able to learn how to do what we want to do, that kind of a thing. And what does the child do? Because it's, it's used to a certain kind of behavior to get the kind of response it needs. It misbehaves. It does whatever it can to be bad. And lo and behold, it does get the attention. It gets punished. It gets yelled at. It gets singled out. But even when it's being singled out, there's a certain amount of shame and embarrassment. But it's also being noticed, being important that kind of a thing. So Skinner taught us all 50 years ago that rather than using negative reinforcement, which reinforces the behavior, keeps the child doing that, we give no reinforcement, no positive, no negative. The child has to leave the classroom, go to another room, which is called timeout, and just sit there for like five minutes, gets nothing. The child then comes back into the classroom and the first thing the child does that is positive is positively reinforced. So the child walks into the classroom and the teacher says, oh, 
well, you walked in so quietly, that's wonderful. Or you closed the door so nicely, good for you. Or why wow, you picked up your pencil so well, that's great. And slowly, we help the child to develop the love of positive reinforcement rather than negative reinforcement. And the persona that the child then develops is that personality that the child wears in that environment to get what it needs. As Jung says, to reveal what will be positively reinforced by the environment and to conceal that which would not. And of course, that which gets concealed we eventually becomes the shadow. And we talk about that uh, in the next part of our, our lecture here. So as we can see, individuation is a dynamic process that generates tensions of opposites. Those opposites then, in seeking a resolution, direct us to that which will do that, the one between actual and potential, for example. Maybe I need to go to school. Maybe I need to learn how to ride a bike. Maybe I need to learn how to cook, that kind of a thing. That the archetype is that which gives us a sense of what the instinct needs for it to be accomplished. Now, one of the big instincts, of course, is procreation. I mean, the human race doesn't continue if nobody is procreating. And in order to procreate, two people have to come together. And that is one of the biggest tensions of opposites that most of us experience. And most of us don't quite realize that when we begin to feel oppositional with the person we have decided to settle down with, that opposition is a dynamic tension that develops into direction for the two of us as a couple. And unfortunately, too often we think that that dynamic tension, that opposition, is negative. It's undermining of relationship. So a lot of times uh, we, we end up wanting to leave the person. This is why I'm also a priest in the Episcopal Church and why when I used to marry people, I used to say, in three years, I want you to get in touch with me. I want you to, I want you to get in touch with me and tell me how you are. And inevitably, in three years, they were beginning to think maybe they hadn't settled down to the person they really wanted. Maybe this was not the marriage made in heaven. Maybe it was made in hell. And they're kind of really getting on each other's nerves or they're really beginning to feel like they, they haven't married a very good person. And of course, that's a whole other thing we could talk about in terms of projection and all of that, which we will. We'll get into that, but not quite yet. And I would say to them, look, if you guys are having conflicts, that is the most creative part of your relationship. Now you have the opportunity as a couple in your own tensions of opposites to move in directions you never would have encountered at all had you remained alone, single. Now, being alone and being single is not a negative state of affairs. It has its own tensions of opposites between the various aspects of our personality. But in a, in, a bi, in, a, in, a, in a bipolar relationship, I don't mean bipolar in terms of diagnosis, but just you know, one person and another person, that tension, that conflict is enormously productive of individuation. So I would then say to them, you know, this is, this is something for you to really think about. It's not, not an occasion for you to leave each other. It's an occasion for you to stay together. There's a great example of this in... Uh, Ryan's Daughter, a movie years and years and years ago, where Robert Mitchum and Sarah Miles are, uh, he's an older teacher and she's a younger student. They fall in love and they get married. And of course they have their usual conflicts and difficulties and they end up having to leave the town and be, because of a scandal. And uh, the, uh, there are actually two, two scenes in this that I love. One of the scenes in the movie that I really enjoy is where 
uh, Sarah Miles, who has had an affair with a German soldier, is now being taken into a schoolroom and having her head shaved, which was what they often did. This is in Ireland in those days. And uh, actually, Sarah Miles' father, John Mills, who is also, uh, uh, I guess, Sarah Mills? I don't know. I may have this wrong. But anyway, the guy who plays the old priest is walking into the schoolhouse to stop all of this, and people are getting his way and, and, and pushing him away and saying, oh, Father, this has nothing to do with you. And he hauls off and slugs a guy, and the guy goes, Father, remember your cloth. And he goes, that's what it's for, which I've always loved being a priest, but that's a whole other thing. There's a little digression there to show about how individuation works. But anyway, at the end of the movie, Robert Mitchum and Sarah Miles are leaving town, and they're going to split up. They're going to move to the city and split up. And, and the old priest says to them, I just want you to know that I think that this is an indication you should stay together. This, this, is, this is my gift to you to tell you, stay together. This is a very important tension, conflict of interest, and you should... You should wait and see how it resolves. A very, very kind of good Jungian uh, example of what it takes in order to individuate in terms of honoring tensions of opposites and, and letting them work on us. That's pretty good for individuation at the moment about what it does. Uh, we're going to get into some of the aspects of individuation and what we should do about it. We've done a little bit about that, which is to honor the tensions of opposites. As von Franz would say, uh, and Jung would say, stay in the tension of opposites. Don't try to go to one pole or the other, because if consciousness keeps the tension in consciousness, the unconscious, which, con which compensates consciousness, is going to generate the opposite, which is the unification of those opposites. And an archetype will then show us how to find that unification in our lives. So we're going to cut off for a moment here, and we'll come back in a couple of moments, and and do the structure and dynamics of the psyche. What are the various aspects of the psyche and how do they develop? But for now, remember that individuation is the way in which the organism, the human organism, develops into a more highly differentiated, a more complex, a, 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 an organism better able to uh, encounter and adapt all of the vagaries of life and that the archetypes are that which gives us a sense of what that should be. We've now had a chance to look at what individuation is, so let's take a look now about how to engage. In other words, if we have a sense of what this is all about, how should we participate in it? The first thing to remember is we are not the masters of individuation. The ego may seek mastery and control in the external world. You know, we control how we drive, what we do, what we eat, that kind of a thing, what time we get up in the morning. We, we, could, we could control things pretty much in the external world. But to try to do that in the internal world is pretty much to court disaster because individuation more than anything else is a relationship. It's an ongoing dialogue. So the relationship between conscious and unconscious is the goal of individuation. When we're born, most everything that adapts to the environment, that keeps us alive, as we said earlier, <clears throat> is unconscious. There really isn't consciousness up and running to figure out what to do and how to do it. That occurs later. Again, around five, six, seven. Some of us are earlier, some of us are later. It depends on how it uh, develops. But our behavior 
is going to be a result of the collaboration between conscious and unconscious once we are old enough to recognize that there are a variety of different influences on how we perceive and how we behave. So for example, if between ages one and five or six, development is pretty much unconscious, once we begin to realize what's going on around us, it becomes more conscious. And we do kind of forget that there's something else going on. It's, it's not that we forget, it's that we never kind of knew it. Consciousness is new and it's trying to figure things out. Now, one of the dilemmas we have in talking about all of this is that we refer to con unconscious dynamics as the unconscious, as if the unconscious were a thing, which of course it is not. And we do the same with the psyche. We say the psyche, the ego, the shadow, and so on. And this gives the wrong impression that these dynamics are things and complicates our relationship with them. Treating something as a thing is far different than engaging in a dynamic. So just using the word the is actually, if you want to think about it, an act of conscious imperialism, which of course consciousness does. The ego and consciousness does definitely try to mastery and control everything. But doing so with regard to unconscious, and we're going to try to use conscious and unconscious rather than consciousness and the unconscious, but conscious and unconscious, trying to do that is usually not a very good idea. Unconscious expresses itself to conscious in symbols. As Jung said, the psychological mechanism that transforms energy is the symbol. So what then is a symbol? Well, a symbol is some recognition by conscious of some aspect of the dynamic of unconscious. Now, the unconscious, and again, we're going to use the unconscious, and I will slip into that periodically because I am as much a, a conscious imperialist as anybody, but the unconscious is a multitude of dynamics, all kinds of different things going on in there. When we think about neuroscience today and we think about synaptic plasticity, and synaptic complexity and the various aspects of the brain that are interacting with each other. Sometimes when we do a CAT scan or a PET scan or an fMRI, we notice that in any given activity or thought going on in the brain, different areas of the brain are actually working on that phenomenon. They, different parts of the brain light up. So the unconscious is a large collection of all kinds of dynamics. Everything in unconscious is dynamic. It, it's totally dynamic. All of these physics and chemistry are, are dynamics that are constantly going on in the brain, which of course we now refer to as the connectome because everything is connected. The images that are produced that come from unconscious represent those dynamics. Thus, translating them into substance is at best approximate and at worst, delusional. What that means is that symbols must not be taken literally. They must be taken as the best possible representation at the moment of something that's essentially inconceivable. Now that we can't conceptualize it in consciousness. It's just a dynamic. We perceive unconscious only through the images and words of conscious. Now that's kind of interesting too. So let's just use our imperialism here and say that we perceive what's going on in the unconscious 
only when it expresses itself or when we apprehend it, so to speak, in words and images that are familiar to consciousness. I dream of a car. I dream of a tree. If I have an idiosyncratic dream for which there is no word for it uh, and no image to represent it, we can't remember it. So those times when we dream and we wake up and we realize, oh man, I was really dreaming. That was quite an intense dream. And we go to write it down and nothing comes. That's a pretty good indication that there may be no words or images uh, in consciousness to express what unconscious is showing. So we have to be aware of taking images literally. They carry the essence of unconscious message. The message is dynamic, not substantive. But if we take them literally, this is a real problem. The goal, then, is interaction with the symbol, dialogue. We want to consider, well, what, what is going on here? What might this be? What, what am I seeing here that might be beyond what I'm seeing? And this is why a dreamer's associations with symbols are the most important, because symbols are individual. Again, remember, we're talking about individuation. So if I dream of a car, it's far less important what the definition of a car might be, although that is important. But what is more important is what I think a car is, what my relationship to a car is, because what that will do is give me a sense of what the dynamic of that image is in terms of my own psychological constitution and development. So we want to avoid trying to engineer what we believe unconscious is doing or saying. So, for example, if I dream of a car, let, let's suppose I dream of a car, and my dream is that the, uh, the car is uh, going through an intersection, and I, by, I hit the brakes, and uh-oh, you know, nothing happens. Well, here's a very interesting example of a time when we might not want to take the image of the car totally uh, symbolically by saying, for example, well, the car, you know, that kind of, that kind of is a good representation of the, the dynamic in life by, by which I get through life. It's kind of my vehicle in life, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm going through life uh, without realizing that I need to be able to slow down and stop a little bit. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm going too fast in my life. Very good. But this is one of the examples where I always tell people, if you dream there's something wrong with your car, get it checked out. Take it literally. So here I am, unfortunately, and I'm sorry to confuse you, saying we don't always want to take dream symbols as symbolic. And there are really two examples where I say we, we, we should also take them literally. One is if we dream there's anything wrong with our body, we might want to get that checked out uh, because the, the physical um, dynamics of the body are reflected in unconscious and the unconscious will, uh, will kind of express that. And so we might want to get it checked out. I dream there's something wrong with my uh, intestines, I might want to get that checked out. On the other hand, the body is hugely symbolic. We know this. Think, for example, of the heart. And the heart and love are definitely uh, connected. So the body itself is also very symbolic. But if it's your car or something like that, or your bicycle, get it checked out. Because what happens is when we're driving our car, and we're concentrating on the radio, or we're concentrating on who's driving in front of us. Or if you drive in Olympia, you're concentrating on the fact that the person in front of you has never learned how to use turn signals. We're not necessarily focusing on how the car feels, how it's performing. But our body takes in that information. 
and taking in that information, uh, when consciousness doesn't uh, recognize it, it's pretty much likely to come out in a dream. I've had several people who've had dreams. The brakes were gone in their car, and they go and get, check it with the, the mechanic, and the mechanic refuses to allow them to drive the car out of the shop because their brakes are about to go. So that's another thing. But we generally want to take the images that come from dreams symbolically. Now, how do we do that? Well, of course, the first thing is by not taking it literally, except, of course, what I just talked to you about with regard to something wrong with your car, something wrong with your body. But letter, generally, we don't want to necessarily take it literally. We want to say, okay, what do these images mean in my individuation, in my life course? What has been my experience with these images? And how is the unconscious essentially giving me some information that may expand my awareness of what's going on in my life in individuation. And let me let me give you a couple of examples of that. One of my favorites is that uh, in the Jung Society here in Olympia, we used to spend the first hour looking at something from Jung and the second hour doing dream analysis. And uh, one of the interesting things about group dream analysis, in my experience, because I've done it for decades, is that when a group is meeting together to look at dreams, any individual's dream that is brought to the group generally is a dream for the whole group. It's not just that individual's dream. It's a dream of the whole group. The, the, it's like a group dream, if you will, informing the group. And one night, a woman brought in a dream, and she you know, talked about it, and she talked about how there were these green olives in the dream, and afterwards we said to her, what, what, what do olives symbolize to you? you know, what, are, what are olives? And she gave us some thoughts about that. But one of the things I always encourage people to do is take the images of a dream and use them as a kind of filter or a kind of lens by which to see what's going on in our everyday life. This is where we really engage individuation because the unconscious is demonstrating, if you will, its dynamics through an image. And then we are using that image to see what place it holds in our lives going forward forward, so to speak. So I said to people, take anything from the dream and just notice what you see in the next week. Notice what you see that corresponds with what you saw in the dream. I was out to dinner a couple nights later, and uh, I noticed that uh, the table, a couple doors down from me, a couple tables down from me, there were a couple of people drinking martinis. And I saw, whoa, they have olives. I should look at that. I, I, I should just see what's going around, going on around the olives. You know, what, 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 is, what is the image of the olive bringing to me? So I looked a little more closely and I realized I knew the two people, but I never knew they had any kind of a relationship. So here I was getting an enormous amount of information that I might not otherwise have seen that was relevant to my connection to the world. So by connecting to the image of the dream symbol in the world, I was seeing more things. And I realized actually that the fact that these two people had a relationship was uh, kind of uh, important in my knowledge of what was going on in their life and its effect on my life. So I won't go into any more than that because it's, it's not relevant. Folk tales and myths, as we said, were something that Jung looked to to see how unconscious processes were representing themselves in words and images. And one of my favorite ones is the Grimm's fairy tale, Godfather Death.
And basically the fairy tale uh, goes this, it, it, it's, it's more elaborate than this, but a young man is born to a very poor father who can't take care of him. So the, the father gives him to death and says, would you be the godfather to my son? And, and death says, yes, I will take him. And so the godfather, death takes in the son, loves him, takes care of him, and, and gives him a very important secret and says to him, because the son becomes a physician, he says, okay, here, when you are a physician, this is something you can remember. And I may have this just switched, but this is essentially the, 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 uh, the gist of it. If I, death, am standing at the head of a bed, the person will live. If I'm standing at the foot of the bed, the person will die. Well, okay, so the son takes this and becomes known far and wide as an amazing physician who can save lives, but also realize when lives cannot be saved. He becomes very, very famous. But things begin to go a little bit awry when he realizes that he could switch the bed. In other words, here's consciousness, again, trying to take mastery over unconscious. So, at one point, uh, the king's daughter is dying. And uh, the king says, if anybody can save her, I, I will give my daughter to that man. Well, this is great for the physician. He also is kind of in love with this young woman. And so he walks into the room and, oh my God, there's Godfather Death, you know, at the foot of the bed, which means she's going to die. Uh, so what does he do? He switches the bed so that she now lives because Godfather Death is at the head of the bed. He does this several times, and of course he wins the daughter's hand, and he wins the kingdom, and he's very, very famous, and Godfather Death calls him in and says, I, I, I need to show you some things here, and he takes him into this cave, and all these candles, he says, each one of these candles is a human life. Some are sputtering and about to go out. Some are vibrant and alive and, and burning brightly, and, and the, uh, the son goes, well, well, which one is mine? And Godfather just says, this one here, and it's flickering, about to go out. And, and the son goes, wait, 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 no, don't, don't do this. Give me a different candle. Give me, and Godfather says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. This is the way it is, and this is going to happen, and the son dies. Okay, very interesting message from the unconscious, we could so kind of say. And there are a number of levels of interpretation that we could take with that. I teach psychology to residents and med students as part of my clinical faculty appointment up at the med school. And I always give them this, uh, this fairy tale. And I say, you know, you might want to be careful about how you manipulate whether people live or die. Uh, you might want to be a little careful about thinking you know if a person is going to survive or not. Uh, maybe the test shows, oh, they're vibrant and fine. But as one physician once said to me, the goal is to treat the patient, not the test. Uh, and so it's, it's, it applies to medical practice. And it also applies to, number two, our daily life. For example, end-of-life issues. When, when should we allow ourselves to die? When, when is enough enough? When, when should we, for example, in our living will, have a do not resuscitate? Or, as in my living will, a do not treat because medicine is so sophisticated at this age that we rarely ever get to the point where we need to be resuscitated. So I have a do not treat. Or trying to cheat death. When I was young, I was a boy, I, I loved thinking, that at least, that I was cheating death. And a buddy of mine and I were, were both uh, loved to sail uh, sailboats, and we 
took our sailboat out on Lake Ontario when the thunderstorms would come down the lake. They would stretch from the northern part of the lake to the southern part of the lake. They were huge. And we would go out and there would be waves and wind and crashing thunder and lightning. And we would just sail through it and then come back in. And we came back in one day and there was a, this older, well, actually an old man, kind of just sitting on the dock. And as we came in, he said to us, well, that was, that was pretty wild. And we went, yeah, we cheat death. And he said to us, when you get to be my age, death will cheat you. So here was a guy who really actually knew about the whole uh, lesson of Godfather death. And th but there's a third level of interpretation we can put on this too, which is the intrapsychic dynamics, our relationship with our inner psyche and what's going on, trying to control the unconscious, for example. We can certainly moderate the unconscious expression, but we can't prevent its existence. Take, for example, emotions. Emotions happen to us. They are not something we can regulate. We, can re we can't regulate their existence, but we can regulate their expression. If I'm driving on the interstate and some guy cuts me off, my unconscious may suggest to me that the appropriate reaction would be to reach into the glove compartment, pull out a 45 caliber pistol, which of course I don't have in my glove compartment, but let's suppose I did, and as I drive by the guy, shoot him, because he's a menace, he should be dead. Well, one of the things about the unconscious is it's usually pretty exaggerated, but that's the feeling I might have. I might have the feeling of, I wanna kill that guy, what an asshole. But in fact, I'm going to regulate that expression of the emotion. I'm going to allow the emotion to be there, but I'm going to regulate its expression. And as we learn to regulate the expressions of our emotions, we learn to live lives that are a little more uh, connected to the world around us and a little less centered on just ourselves. So there are these three levels of interpretation, one medical practice to uh, end of life issues or daily life, and then free the inner psychic dynamics. And, and how much do we want to feel that we can, like the physician with his godfather death, how much do we wanna see that we are the ones who determine the outcome of various events rather than letting them take their own course. And again, everything is a tension of opposites. Remember that out of tensions of opposites, psychic energy is generated. Symbols transform that psychic energy into new directions and new understandings. So when we, when we talk about uh, working with symbols, one of the most important things to remember is that sometimes, uh, you know, we want to let things take their own course and sometimes we want to kind of engineer things ourselves. The goal is to be in relationship with the feedback we get from our own unconscious, to be in relationship with that so that we can get a sense of how to guide the course of our lives. Now, another thing that's very helpful in engaging the unconscious and in individuation is symptoms. Now, there are three principles on which Jungian analysis is, is based. And the, the first is that the psyche is a self-regulating organism, as Jung said. The psyche is a self-regulating system that maintains its equilibrium just as the body does. So the psyche is always trying to balance itself, adjust itself, recover from shock, figure out the best way to move forward in individuation. And it does that when there's a problem through symptoms. So the second thing in Jungian analysis is the symptom is the attempt at the cure. Now this is radically different from most psychotherapies and radically different from a lot of what exists in medicine today.
But not everything is like that. Uh, there's a lot in medicine that does recognize that the symptom is the attempt at the cure. A fever, for example, is one of the best examples that we don't always want to lower a fever unless it's very high, up around 104, 105. But if it's down around 101, 102, for most of us, we kind of let it be there because that, that inflammation in the body is actually creating a negative environment for the pathogen to live in. And so the pathogen dies and we get better. So in physiology, yes, we do recognize that the symptom is the attempt at the cure. Pain is probably the best example of that. Whenever we have pain, pain is telling us that there's something wrong. We need to look at that and relieving the pain is not always the best thing to do. I, for example, have a lifetime supply of Percocet because every time I break a, a rib or something like that, which I sometimes do because I'm a little too wild for my age, they give me a lot of Percocet, but I don't take it because I want the pain to inform me of when I'm going too far in re-injuring the injury or aggravating the injury. So what we wanna do with regard to symptoms is recognize that you know this is telling us something that we need to know. Early in my career, for example, and this is part of my individuation, when I, was, when I graduated from grad school and I completed my analytic training and I wanted to open a practice, it, it took a while to build up a patient base. And a friend of mine who was an industrial psychologist recommended that I work for an EAP, an employee assistance program, where I would be able to treat people uh, that would be sent to me by the uh, employer, and that would be a good way to build up a practice. Well, I looked into it and I realized that one of the biggest symptoms that they were treating was depression. And my job was to relieve the depression and get the person back to work. But in many cases, the depression was caused by the fact that their job was absolutely uh, life draining. It was horrible. It was killing them. And what the depression was doing was trying to get them out of the job. Now, for me to put them back into the job, would not be good for their individuation and it would, would not be good for mine. So I did not join any EAPs. Now, the final thing about the thing, we've got the three things, psyche is self-regulating, it does through symptoms, that's number two. And number three is that the patient is the expert. And when we get into dreams and that kind of thing, we will really talk a lot about that. And what that means is our psyches, our bodies are always giving us the information we need to thrive, to progress, to grow, and that's what individuation is. Now, with regard to the symptom being the attempt at the cure, here's a very curious one you might be interested in. When, uh, when I work with the residents and med students who are going through the uh, inpatient unit rotation here at our local hospital, I always ask them, you know, bring, bring in a case study if you want. You know, if there's a, a particular example that you're interested in looking at further, bring it in. And one day they brought in this one of a woman who was absolutely psychotic. She was obsessed with the delusion that her mother was having an affair with her husband. And, and they knew that the mother was not having an affair with the husband. The husband was not having an affair with the mother. That was just absolutely ridiculous. So the woman was clearly delusional. And so my challenge to the med students was, well, maybe the psychotic delusion is on the money, but not literally. Maybe there's something more symbolic going on. I said, how about the, the possibility that the woman who is the mother, the, the woman whose mother was uh, supposedly having an affair with this woman's husband, what if 
the woman's mother had always valued men over women. What if this woman had had a brother and the mother was always praising the brother and always you know, taking care of the brother and that kind of a thing and not paying much attention to the daughter? Now the daughter gets married and maybe the mother has a more intimate, not sexually, not physically, but ontologically, spiritually, has a more intimate relationship with the woman's husband than she does with the daughter. Maybe the mother really is having an affair with the husband, but not in the way we think it. They went back to the clinic and they checked it out and they thought, they found out that, yeah, that's exactly what was going on. That's what was happening. So here we have a psychotic symptom which is coming out of the unconscious. And the unconscious is, quite frankly, usually pretty psychotic. Uh, I mean, it's exaggerated. It uses images that are way overblown uh, in most cases or hard to figure out. And they realize that they could approach this situation by addressing the relationship that the mother had with the daughter and, of course, with, with the husband. Now, the other thing, too, is that we can learn from in terms of symptoms, which help our individuation, is when we have physical symptoms. Uh, and we even have uh, psychological phrases that correspond with physical symptoms like, I can't stomach this, or I can't get my teeth into that, or I don't know what got into me, all of which indicate where a problem may exist in our lives. If I can't stomach something, I may actually get stomach problems. If I can't get my teeth into something, I may end up grinding at night. So when we get a physical symptom, we might want to think, what's the psychological aspect of this? And what is this physical symptom telling me about what the problem is? The problem is not that my body is responding in a way that is painful. The problem is that I'm not seeing that my body is responding in a way that's painful because there's something painful in my life that the body is expressing. So the challenge in all of this, and we're going to kind of wind up our individuation session right here with, with this idea, the challenge in all of this Jungian analysis and all of this Jungian stuff that we're interested in is how does matter, atoms, molecules, chemicals, how does that create life? How does life come out of all of that? How, for example, if my neurotransmitters in my brain are creating certain images for me, how is that enhancing my life? How is it telling me how my life should move forward and what I should pay attention to in order to cooperate with my life moving forward? So how does matter give rise to life? That's ultimately everything we're trying to do in Jungian psychology. And it's everything that Jung was doing too. This is why he looked so far and wide to find out how other systems of thought, systems of philosophy, religions, folklore, mythology, culture, had tried to answer that same question. And this led him, of course, to alchemy. And alchemy was definitely an attempt to find out how does matter transform into life? Or how does life come out of matter? And the alchemists were very interested in the character of various elements, like lead, for example. Uh, lead has a personality very different from carbon, which has a personality very different from sulfur. So they saw these personalities and they did all kinds of experiments with them to try to find out what, what is the essence of transformation of these elements 
then how does that give us insight into our own personal transformation? And as Jung said, uh, there were basically two kinds of alchemists. There were the puffers, they were called puffers by the other alchemists, and they were basically kind of the developers of the day, with the, uh, the, uh, the, um, the investors the, of, uh, of, of the day. They wanted to turn lead into gold. They wanted to find out how to make money out of all of this stuff. And they were kind of looked down upon by the other alchemists, who were really the more spiritualists, the, the paracelsus, those kind of people who were really interested in what is the secret of life. And of course, as Jung discovered, they had to write it all in code, because if the church found out they were doing this, they were kind of in deep trouble. They could even lose their lives in like an inquisition if the church knew that they were trying to find the secret of life when God was the only secret. And if you're trying to do something else than that, you need to be killed. So they wrote it all in code. And it was always kind of in religious code. And once Jung realized that, he was like, wait a minute, we can decipher all of this and see what's going on. So Jungians, generally all of us, are interested in alchemy and we're doing alchemy. The important thing in all of this is to understand that alchemy is giving the insights into how matter gives rise to life. Now, today we have alchemy, and it's called, are you ready for this? Genetics. Genetics is exactly how we do alchemy. Genetics is how DNA, RNA, proteins, which are all chemicals, create life and everything else. And we know that epigenetics, for example, is very, very important now with regard to genetics. And epigenetics is the, the soup, if you will, the context in which genetics take place. And in happening that way, we see that there's an interaction between the environment and the heredity. The heredity being the DNA, the environment being the soup in which DNA expresses itself. So there we have it. A lot about individuation. I hope it's been helpful to you. We can go on uh, in further lectures to look at some of the aspects of the psyche. And even beyond that, we can then begin to look at dreams and all of that. So thank you very much for listening to this. Uh, thank you very much for the Jung platform for making this all possible. And hope to see you again in the future.